couple months ago, I was participating um, with my in-laws in an escape room. Um, and if you're not familiar with that, that doesn't just mean I was in a room with my in-laws and was trying to get out. Um, these are something that you, you know, you pay money for and they lock you in a room, metaphorically, kind of, and then they give, throw you in this scenario or puzzle and you have to use your wits and your brains and the kind of group around you and try and figure out how to escape this room using kind of the clues that they've left there. And it's interesting doing that to see kind of how everybody acts a little differently. When we did it, little Grant was with us and he was still pretty small. So I was in charge of holding him and really just kind of watched as everyone else was going through the escape room and I just kind of kept him happy. So I wasn't really participating, uh, but it was fun to see how others act or participated. You had some who were real like to take charge and be the one to tell everyone how they should be doing things or speak the loudest and kind of lead the group. You have others that are a little more timid and maybe they fixate on one clue or one part and kind of did things and some who were more like me that were just, you know, I think there's enough things going on here. I'm just going to hang back and see what happens. And we'll, then at the end, you know, if we fail or lose, it's not really me. I didn't do anything. I was just hanging out there. But if we won, it was definitely, or if we lost, I could have done it better, you know, if I tried. But we escaped, and, but the, the thing about that is just interesting to see how people participate. Because when you don't participate, you, like I didn't, you miss out on something. The joy that we got when the puzzle was solved and we got to escape wasn't really mine. I was just watching it happen. And how much more fun it would have been to actually participate fully in it. Now that... That's a small thing in escape rooms, but we also need to really participate in the work of God. And what we're going to see this morning in Judges in chapters 4 and 5 is we're going to see that people participate in God's work a little differently as well, just like they do in escape rooms. We'll see some who are, are fully into it and really embrace it. Some are a little more timid and some just stay back and don't want to have anything to do with it at all. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is we're going to look at Deborah and Barak and we're also going to talk about a woman named J.L. and Jesus. What we'll see in these two chapters is not just who gets to participate in the work of God, but what does that participation look like? And what does it mean? And what does it do? And then finally, what can, what can we do about this? And so if you haven't noticed yet, we are going to be in two chapters this morning. So we're going to read through all of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5. Um, so if you would stand with me as you, if you're able as we read through God's Word. However, because it is longer, I will understand. And there's, this is a safe place if you don't feel able to stand for the whole thing. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold him into the hand of Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth-Thegoyim. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. For the people of Israel came to her for judgment. And she summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go and gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 of the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will gather out, or I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, and meet you at the river Kishon with his chariots and troops, and I will give him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. 
And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera to the hand of a woman. And then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called off to Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Hebner the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak near Zanunim, which is near Kadesh. And when Sisera had told Barak, the son of Ebonoam, had gone to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Hersheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell to the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Job and the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Hebner, took a tent peg, and she took a hammer in her hand. She went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground where he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And she went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Ebenoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, and the people offered themselves willingly, Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear. O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and the travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates, with shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down march the remnant of the noble people of the Lord, march down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root marched down into the valley. Following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down their commanders. And from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes from Issachar came with Deborah. And Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley as they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were searchings of heart. Why do you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling of the flocks? 
Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still on the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulon, a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrents, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Moroz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Hebner the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. And where he sank, he fell dead. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the latrice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoiled the dyed materials of Sisera. Spoiled the dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies Perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would open up our hearts and our ears, allow us to hear from your word this morning. Let us learn from the example of those who have gone before us, and let's get a greater picture of you and your gospel. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So point number one is, if you're taking notes, that we are invited to participate in God's work in the world. That we are invited to participate in God's work in the world. And what a profound gift that this is that we're given. That, that we are invited to go to work with our Heavenly Father. That every day with God is bring your son or daughter to work day. This is what we are invited to do. And in this story we see how Deborah and Barak and Jael are, and others are also invited to go to work with God. The story begins with another start of this cycle in the book of Judges. Where the people have gone again further into sin. 4-1, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. They turn their back again and they find themselves oppressed for another 20 years. And so we have the character of Deborah is introduced to us in verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, a wife of Lapideth, was judging Israel at that time. So Deborah is introduced to us first. And Deborah is a fascinating character for us to see. Now I think that this passage here, especially the, the characters of Deborah and Barak, are not given to us primarily to teach us about gender roles. I don't think this is about who gets to be a pastor or a leader. I think this is about who gets to participate with God, not who gets the power. But I have to address it a little briefly just because it's so prevalent when it comes to this passage. For a long time, most speak and talk about Deborah and say, well, she's only in charge here. She only does anything because there's no righteous men around. 
And now it gets said all the time, so often, even though that's not anywhere in the text. I read several commentaries this week that would say that and be like, well, obviously this is the case. And then they'd admit afterwards, now, I mean, we can't see this anywhere. It doesn't say this, but, you know, we just, we know this for sure, which is, you know, I don't know. I don't think that's quite what's going on here. Now, Deborah's role is unique, but it's not the exception. And she's not primarily introduced to us as a judge of Israel. She's introduced to us as a prophetess. That is her title. That is her job. Now, she does judge. She does lead. She does help make decisions. Or people come to her to hear from God. But that is as her role as a prophetess. Because you go to the prophet to hear, hey, what does God have to say? Well, I don't know. Let's go see the prophetess. She's the one that God speaks to. So let's go see. And there are plenty of other instances in the Bible where we have female prophets, where we have prophetesses, and they're not given just because there's no other good prophets around, and so God had to find somebody, and so he settled for a woman. If that was the case, two of the best examples of prophetesses, well, you have Moses' sister Miriam. She's referred to as a prophet. Now, if she's only a prophet because there wasn't a good prophet around, that's kind of a problem because you have Moses there. And Moses was considered by Israel the greatest prophet that had ever lived till Jesus. So I don't think his sister is a prophet just because Moses needed some help. You also, another prophetess that we've talked about when we went through Isaiah is Isaiah's wife. Isaiah's often considered the second greatest prophet. And he's one of the richest. Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is like the Romans of the Old Testament. Now I don't think his wife is a prophet either because Isaiah was kind, or Isaiah was kind of a bum and needed help. No, instead, this isn't about that. Yes, Deborah's position, it's unique but in what God is doing, but it's not just an exception. This is another example of how God includes everybody, especially women, in his work in the world. And too often, what, what happens when we come to passages in God's Word, especially when it comes to women specifically, is we can take time to turn and discuss into what women can't or should not do in God's kingdom. Instead of just celebrating and saying, hey, look, look at how God elevates and look at how God includes women and men and invites them to go to work with their Heavenly Father together. So maybe I think we should spend more time just celebrating that fact instead of just drawing lines and saying, well, let's talk about maybe the one thing we don't think that women can do. So I think Deborah here is held up to us as a wonderful example. She is fully participating in God's work. As a prophetess, she's speaking for God. She's well-respected. She has her spot at the palm where everyone knows that she is, and people from all over Israel come around to hear from her. And what does God have to say? She settles disputes, much like Moses did, and much like the prophet Samuel would do later. She's a full participant in God's work. Now, Barak is a little bit different. He's a little more of a hesitant participant. So Deborah summons Barak in verse 6, and she comes and says, you know, has not the Lord of Israel commanded you? Go, gather up your men. Like God, God's told you, we're going to go fight them. You're just going to deliver them into your hand. And then it ends, you know, with saying, has not God commanded you? That, that beginning phrase here. Now there's some, some options. It, it makes it seem right as if God's already told Barak this, as if God already came to Barak and told him, hey, gather up an army. I'm going to lead you to be the deliverer and conqueror, and you're going to do this. Now, that could be it. That, that's possible. 
Um, it, it's also possible that this isn't new information. This is just one of the ways that prophets talk. There's other examples you can find of prophets saying, has not God commanded you to do this? And it's not necessarily meaning that God already told them. It's just kind of a rhetorical way that prophets like to speak. You'll see some translations like the NSAB or the NIV, depending on what Bible you have in front of you, yours may just say, behold, the Lord has commanded you. So the translators of that version kind of took it that way. So the opinion there is a little bit split, but the real kicker here is Barak's response in 8, where he says, if you go with me, then I'll go. But if you won't go with me, then I'm not going to go. So Barak appears to have a condition on his obedience. of saying, well, okay, God's told me that I'm going to do this. You're telling me, your respected prophetess voice of God that I'm supposed to go. You know, I, I don't know. I'd like you to come with me. So some like to see this just as a mark of his faith. Well, he's just asking for the presence of God because you probably want the prophet to be with you as you're leading his armies. That's usually a good sign, right? If the prophet's with you, surely God will be with you so you can't lose. But I think some of this, it shows a little bit of a lack of faith. Because it does seem to show, you know, it's not that he's unwilling to go, but he does have some conditions. He, he wants a sign. He wants a visible sign of God's presence with him. He wants to know for sure that he can trust what Deborah is saying. And it seems a, a little bit of both here to me. I, I think Barak is one of our flawed heroes that we found in the book of Judges. He gets invited to participate with God and he does participate, but he's a little unsure. Reminds me of another character in God's word, the disciple Thomas. If you remember Thomas, after the resurrection of Jesus, he says, and they say, hey, we've seen him. He says, well, you know, I'm not going to believe it yet until I see him, until I touch him myself. And so then, that's why we sometimes refer to him as Downing Thomas, which isn't very kind, because I don't know how many of us would have believed as well if we were in his shoes. But Jesus still, he comes and he appears to Thomas and he shows up and he doesn't rebuke Thomas. He says, Thomas, here I am, come, touch me. So he meets Thomas where he's at, even with his imperfect faith, and he still gets to be blessed. But then Jesus says, you know, you believe, but even blessed are those who believe who haven't seen me and haven't touched me. So Thomas isn't necessarily rebuked for his lack of faith, but he does miss out on part of the blessing. And it's the same thing here with Barak. He doesn't get rebuked by Deborah. Deborah goes with him, but Deborah does tell him, look, the road you're going down isn't going to lead to your glory. The Lord will sell Sisera to the hands of a woman. Which that's also, that's setting you up to think Deborah is going to be the one to get Sisera. And she's not. Just some irony there. But so she warns him, hey, there's a catch. Like you're going to, I'll go with you and you'll do this. But you're going to miss out on the, the greatest honor of that time, right? Being the one to capture their big leader. The one who's been terrorizing Israel for 20 years. Now sure, I, I think... Even with this warning, you see, Barak still wants Deborah to come. Now, to some extent, I'm going to give Barak a little bit of credit. His faith is lacking, but he's still willing to obey. He's still willing to go, and even with the warning, of knowing, well, I'm going to miss out on the greatest glory. You know what? That's okay. That's okay. Someone else can have it. I, I still am going to go and do what God commands. And I think it's because of this that he's included in Hebrews 11. And he's listed among others in what we call the hall of faith. Why? Not because his faith was amazing or perfect or the greatest faith ever, but because he showed up and he participated and he went to work alongside God. Now he does obey, not as confidently, but he shows up and that showing up can't be said for everyone. In chapter 5, we see later how every single tribe was invited to go with Barak. 
But some of them stayed home. Some of them stayed in their fields, just kind of whistling to themselves. Some stayed by their ships and their boats. And some people just didn't want anything to do with what was going on. So we don't want to get, I don't want to give Barak too hard of a time because while he doesn't participate as fully and as greatly as Deborah does, he still shows up even when others do not. But the amazing thing about God in general is just that he invites any human being into his work whatsoever. God doesn't need us. God didn't need Deborah. God didn't need Barak. God definitely didn't need 10,000 men to be gathered up from all of the tribes. We've already seen how God did it with Shamgar before, by himself, kills 600 people. And yet, God invites human beings to participate with him. If God wanted, he could have just said a word and made all of the Canaanites disappear off the face of the earth. And yet, why does he let us come with him? Well, because he's a good heavenly father who loves us. Just like any of you may have taken your children with you one day to work or you invite them with you on a project or your grandkids to help you do something. Not because probably they're that much help, but just because you want to be with them and you want to do something together. It's amazing how God does this. We shouldn't miss out on this miracle. God doesn't need us and yet he chooses to use us. God uses human beings in his purposes. God's chosen us as followers of Christ, as Christians, as believers to be a part of his mission to the world. That God's plan for the kingdom of God is the church. It is those 12 disciples in that crowd that was with him that before he ascended and he said, okay, now go out and make disciples of all nations. The Great Commission. Ordinary men, women, and children invited to spread the kingdom of God and the gospel all throughout the world. God could have done that himself. Could have done that with angels. He could have just gone on his own tour and done that and yet he invites us to do it with him. That we even as Tanglewood Bible Fellowship are a part of God's work and God's mission in the world. That we play a, a role in what God wants to do here in Stevens County. That we, get, we are invited to participate alongside God in what he wants to do in Duncan and Comanche and Marlowe and all the surrounding areas. That we are here for a purpose. And not just us, but every church in town that really believes Jesus and his word. We are all invited on the same mission not our mission, but God's mission to participate in the work of God. Now, Deborah and Barak had a particular mission for them. God had their, their own instructions, and yet God today has given us our own mission as well, the Great Commission, to make disciples, to go and to baptize them and to teach them to obey. We've all been invited. The question is, will we answer the call? We don't have to have all the confidence. Maybe we can be like Barack and be filled with some doubts and want some help, want somebody to come with us. But we need to show up. So if we're all invited to participate in the work of God, well, what does our participation do? Or why do we do it? Or what does it accomplish? Point number two, if you're taking notes, is that our participation reveals the gospel. That our participation reveals the gospel. Our work alongside, doesn't, alongside God doesn't accomplish his purpose, right? Because as if God is weak and really needs help. As if God really needed to make sure he had 10,000 men because he couldn't do it with 9,000. His plan would have only worked if it was that. Because you look and you see later in, in chapter 5, it makes it seem in verse 4 and 5 that God makes a massive storm come and miraculously the river rises up and takes out all the chariots. And they get stuck in the mud. 
God didn't need anybody to do that. He could have done that on his own. He could have just made it run higher and drowned all of them. And yet he invites us. Now, why do we participate then? Well, what we do is we don't accomplish it, but we reveal part of the truth of the gospel. We reveal part of God's plan for the world. And we see this in the story of Jael. I think that Jael is actually the star of this story. Chapters 4 and 5, I think she really is kind of the, the point of it. Not just because she kills the general and gets all of the glory. Uh, because her, what she does actually foreshadows the gospel. So when the battle comes, God, God works the miracle right, the chariots flood, Sisera flees, and he finds himself at the tent of Jael. And in the beginning, you may even notice there's kind of that, that weird verse 11 where it talks about Hebner the Canaanite randomly. It's saying, hey, this one guy, you know, he, he left Israel and he went over here and he decided to ally himself with the king of Canaan. Well, it's there to set us up, kind of foreshadow Jael's coming. So he shows up at this place and Jael says, hey, come in. And Sisera thinks, oh, good. This is my ally's house. These people are good. We're friends. This is a safe place for me to go and hide. And so she, he asks for water. She gives him milk. She wraps him up, puts a rug over him, covers him up, and he takes a pretty heavy nap. And in 21, Jael, the wife of Hebner, takes a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand, and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And so he died. It's a bit of an understatement at the end of that, that he died. Like, yes, that would, that would do it. But so, why is that in there? That's fairly violent. That's fairly bloody. We're not going to put a picture up of that or anything, right? Because we, we don't have that in the flanograph, I think, back in the children. If you remember flanographs, I don't think there were many flanographs of JL and her tent peg. But so, why is that detail in here, in Scripture? And how does this reveal the gospel? What are you talking about? Well, a couple of ways. One of the things we see just with Jael is she responds to the invitation of God to participate in his work. And it's unexpected. You again have an unexpected foreigner, foreign woman, who leaves and abandons her people and decides to join God's people. She risks everything. She's much like Rahab, one of the women we looked at in Jesus' line last Christmas. She's a Canaanite. She's, she's a foreigner. She's not a native Israelite. Much like Othniel, the first judge that we looked at, she risks everything to join and side with Israel. She goes against her own husband. Her husband left and allied with the king of Canaan. Now we don't know for sure. We can just make guesses based on how things worked back then. She probably didn't get a vote in that decision. Those women didn't get a lot of votes. And yet, with no power, she takes this risk. And she also goes against hospitality. Okay, hospitality isn't as much of a big deal for us. When we think hospitality, we just think, you know, putting on a really nice spread and having some good decorations when people come over. Hospitality is a really big deal then. And one of the greatest, biggest sins you could think of was inviting somebody into your home, telling them this is a safe place, feeding them, and then betraying them in any way, let alone killing them while they slept. This is a really big no-no. This is pretty offensive. This is pretty awful. For at that time, they would have been horrified that this happened. No one would do this. And yet, so that's another way she's kind of similar to Rahab and how she deceives in order to protect God's people. But more than Rahab, I think Jael is actually much like Mary. 
the mother of Jesus. She foreshadows the mother of Jesus. Let me remind you of Genesis 3.15 as the first hint of the gospel. God speaking to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, somebody's head gets bruised pretty well here as an understatement. She pierces the head of the offspring of the serpent while he lays at her feet. She very literally fulfills that verse, foreshadowing the even greater way that Jesus will fulfill it as he dies at the place of the skull on the cross. And verse 526 lays this out repeatedly, how it repeats, you know, she struck his arrow, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple, and between her feet he sank. The general of the armies of the serpent, which is generally how the armies of the nations away from God's people are described, is crushed by a woman. And like Mary, she's one of the only other people in the whole Bible who receives a description of being greatly blessed. 524, most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Hebner the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. Repeats it twice in case you didn't get it the first time. The only other place we see a woman described that way is Mary, the mother of Jesus in Luke 1.42. She is called something similar. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Jael receives this big stamp of approval and a great blessing for participating in God's work and in his deliverance of his people. And Jael has actually shown us as kind of one of the ones who saves and delivers his people from this. And she specifically, too, delivers the women of Israel from rape and death. The end of the song, right, those last couple of verses, it, it, when it's talking about the mother of Sisera in 21 through 30, is kind of weird. The first time I read it, I was like, that's weird. Why are we talking about how sad his mom is? That, that doesn't seem great. I had to read it and look at it a few more times to see what was actually going on. And part of the key to it is look at verse 30 in chapter 5. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. It's a pretty derogatory way to describe women. And that word is chosen intentionally. It's not just, well, did they capture a lot of women? It's just, did they get some wombs? Some wombs they can just use as spoils, and then spoil repeats itself four times just in verse 40. She's describing the way that she was expecting the armies of the serpent to take and to capture the women of Israel and to use them and abuse them however they wanted. And so yet, they're delivered by Jael and her tent peg. Now there's a lot more details in other places um, that I just don't have time to really fully go into that kind of show even more how Jael foreshadows the resurrection of Jesus. Um, there's a, a couple more here, you know, how Sisera asks for a drink, but he's given something different than what he asks for. Um, and someone said, then, hey, the one you're looking for, why don't you come and see? There, there's some different places like that. If you want to look more at that, there's a small book by Julia Walsh called The Tent Peg and the Cross um, that really just goes through all of those. So if that interests you, you can go there or you can come ask me. I'll give you some more in that. But the main thing that we see here from Jael is how her participation in the work of God reveals the gospel. It reveals how she delivers the people of Israel and it points towards the deliverance that Jesus will bring. She was far more than just a cog in the wheel. That God used her story and her piercing the serpent's head to point thousands of years forward in the future towards Jesus. 
And as she gets the blessing, not just of being used by God then, but her story also blesses us here thousands of years later. We are talking about her and what she did for God. And the end of the song in chapter 5 tells us about the blessings and curses of our participation, depending on how we respond. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. The gospel is good news for sinners, but it's not good news for those who don't repent and turn from their sins. Jesus came to conquer his enemies. He on the cross, he defeated sin. And at the tomb, he defeated death. And when he comes again, all the enemies and the powers of this world and all who would oppose and stand against Jesus will perish and will be defeated by him with a word. But the invitation of Jesus and the invitation of the gospel is that we can change teams anytime. We can tap out. We can, sit, like JL, say, you know what? No thanks. I want to be on team Jesus. We are invited to abandon the enemies of the, the armies of the world and join the kingdom of God. JL does this. She chooses to trust and to join in God's family, no matter what the rest of her own earthly family is doing. And she isn't just accepted and given a pat on the head and then sent to the back to be the lowest. She becomes the most blessed woman in the entire kingdom. She becomes a friend of God who rises like the sun. She rises from the enemy camp to a place of honor in God's kingdom. And that invitation through Jesus extends to all of us. To everyone everywhere. It extends to the heart of the enemy camp and it extends to the heart of the greatest sinner. No one is too far from God's grace. None of us have sinned too much that God wants nothing to do with us. That invitation to join God's family is open until our very last breath. On this side of eternity, it is never too late to join God. But the tragedy is that many do not. And that many, instead of repenting of their sin and confessing and believing in Jesus, they stay right where they are. But those who do, who become friends of God, not because of themselves, but because of what the blood of Jesus accomplishes, get to become friends of God who rise like the sun. And then we get to go to work with God and whose work alongside him reveals the gospel. To share the, the story of one woman who, who does this. Her name is Caitlin Mullins. When she was in Dallas, she was a kindergarten teacher. Just working with kindergartners. And one day she started to notice, she kind of slowly had picked up on it, but she started to notice how there were a bunch of her students that seemed to be lagging behind. That they, they weren't getting it as much as the other ones were. And as she kind of pressed in and, and was choosing to make, you know, put in the extra effort to try and help them catch up, she started to notice a similarity. That almost all of her kindergartners who were falling behind were refugees who had come and, and found themselves in her kindergarten class from refugee camps and nations all over the world. And so she started to bring them in more, to spend extra time after school helping them with English and, and give, making sure that, wow, they just don't even have food. Man, they, they keep wearing the same clothes and buying extra food and clothes for them and having extra lessons. And then she started to notice that the parents of these kindergartners would come and stay in her class longer because they too wanted to learn some English. 
And so slowly she eventually started having more meetings in her house. And before long she left her job as a kindergarten teacher and started a nonprofit called For the Nations. And now that nonprofit serves about 200 refugees every single day. Where they have classes to teach English. Where they're the, one of the first calls when somebody gets off the plane and a family there, they call her and she has someone go there and meet them. And they help these families when they get off the plane and help them find work. Help them go through all of the, the paperwork, all of the stuff that they don't understand what they're doing. Help them find jobs, give them training. And also every single day, teach them a little bit about Jesus. And share the Bible about with them and how much God loves them. That's a picture of the gospel. It is not just the, in sharing the gospel that they do every single day, but it is also, hey, I'm going to help you. Caring about the poor and the refugee and the immigrant as God commanded Israel to do so much all throughout his word. And so her work there that started at a small place is just going a, one extra step as a teacher in a kindergarten class turned into this beautiful thing that blesses and reaches hundreds with the gospel. Now, all of our work is invited to do the same thing alongside Jesus. Point Number three, it's kind of our application is, well, what should we do? Well, we should participate in the work of God. If God is inviting us to go alongside him, to show up with him and go to work alongside our heavenly father, and if when we do that, it preaches and it reveals the gospel to the whole world, well, what should we do? Well, we should do that. We should go to work with him. We should participate. And how can we do that? Well, I've got good news. His work is everywhere. There's much to be done. Now, for those of you who may be here, maybe you're not a believer. Or maybe you're here, you're watching online somehow, and you don't follow Jesus. Well, I invite you, join us. Your participation, we don't need you to do anything yet. We just need you to come and embrace Jesus. Lay down your weapons and let Christ in. Because one day all the enemies of God will perish, much like Sisera, and that does not have to be you. Because God loves you. He sent His Son to die for your salvation on the cross. And you can come experience that salvation and join the greatest family on earth. It isn't because we're so awesome, but because we serve a really awesome God who loves us, who sustains us, who's blessed us, and who continues to change us and make us more like Him. Now, that's you. I'd love to talk to you more about that, or any of our elders would do as well, or you can do business with God on your own. But I want you to know that God loves you. And to come and experience and embrace that love. Now for believers, we too are invited to participate. What I want you to see too is, I mean, this is just another way to view your own obedience. That our service and our work with Jesus is revealing the gospel. One of the simple ways we do this first is just preaching the gospel. It's telling people and reminding people about Jesus. How he has died for us. And he did this to purchase our salvation. And that isn't just something that unbelievers need to hear. That's also something that us as believers need to hear. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, one of his congregants asked him, hey, how come you, you, know, you preach the gospel every single Sunday? And he just quickly responded, because he was much smarter, said, well, it's because every week you keep forgetting it. And I have to remind you that you are saved, not because you are awesome, but because God loves you. And that today you are loved and valued by God, not because you did really good and read your Bible a lot, but because... Jesus died for you. That's why you are loved. And we all need that reminder every single day. The unbelievers in your life need that reminder. And the believers in your life need that reminder maybe 
Not necessarily even more, but need it just as much. Another way we participate in the gospel is just through our relationships. Right? We hear this all the time about who are our marriages are meant to be a picture of the gospel. The way that Jesus laid his life down for the church and for us is how husbands are to lay their lives down for their, husband, for their wives. And the ways that we love and care for each other, even when we don't deserve it, and even maybe when we don't like it and don't want to do, is a picture to the world of, wow, how do you do that? How come you're still married? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about what that means. That good, godly marriages are a great blessing to a broken and lost world. Now, also, those of you who are single or widowed, you don't miss out on that either. You also reveal the gospel. You declare to the world and remind us that we are made complete and made whole, not by other human beings, not by relationships or by marriages, but by Jesus and Jesus alone. That's also something that we tend to forget, even good Christians, even me. And your singleness is a picture of what eternity will be like. Then in that day, we won't be married, but there is only Jesus and that is more than enough. Now our work, our participation with, with God as well, there are one of the many ways we can do that uniquely here is through all of the nonprofits in town that serve the poor, that proclaim the gospel in the kingdom. You know there are close to a hundred different nonprofits just in Duncan. That's a lot. That's a lot for anywhere, but especially a, a town like us. And I know many of you are deeply involved in, in different ones because there are a lot of them. The Cares Pregnancy Center. Right, caring for young pregnant women who are need, in need. Not just trying to save the child's life, but also to help that young mother and meet them where they're at, to answer their questions, to give them things that they need and educate them and walk alongside them. That's proclaiming the kingdom and the gospel of how Jesus loves the unborn and how he also loves the needy and loves those who may feel far from him and in crisis. Things like Beautiful Day, that just celebrates children and gives them a, a picture of, hey, God loves you and you matter and you are awesome. That's a picture of the gospel. But all the different organizations that care and feed the poor, that meet the needy, those that care for justice and righteousness, like Jesus thought, all of those things really do matter and are significant. And when part of doing that, participating in those things, is at least a small picture of God's work in the world. Our prayer also participates in God's work. And we pray as part of helping God's plan come true. When we pray, we are participating with Him in helping something happen. Oftentimes, that's about the only participating that we do, is just praying and asking God to do something, and He does it. Because very rarely can we make anything happen on our own. Our prayer is not idle work. It actually may be the most important work that we do. And every week when we do that, we get to participate with God. And if you don't see God doing something, my first question to you might be, well, have you been praying for that? Have you been praying about that? Well, maybe you should start there. I'm going to transition us in a moment to participating in communion, which Paul reminds us as well in, in 1 Corinthians 10, that when we eat of the bread and we drink of the blood that we are actually participating in the blood and the body of Christ when we eat and we drink. 
That something profound happens in that moment as we do it. And it's a great mystery that we aren't just drinking bread and drinking juice. That something profoundly spiritual is happening. That we are participating not just in God's work in the world, but in His very flesh. And what a gift that is for us. What does that even mean? How does it even work? I don't know. It's just a mystery that I choose to enjoy and be grateful for. So this morning, we've talked about participating with God. We've seen that all of us are invited to participate in the work of God in the world. And we've seen that our participation can reveal the gospel to that world in what we preach and also in what we do and how we live. And our application is finally just that we need to participate in God's work in the world, however big, however small, that all of it matters. And we should participate in His work, not just on Sunday, but all week long for the rest of our lives. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll transition to communion. If you don't have the elements already, if you would just raise your hand, and Homer will make sure that you, you get some. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you. Lord, that you even choose to use us. Lord, that you don't need human beings. You don't need us to do anything for you. And yet we get to go to work with our Heavenly Father every single day. Lord, would you give us eyes to see where you are already at work in our midst, in our lives. And in our circles, in our neighborhood, in our street. Give us eyes to see what you are already doing. Help us to come alongside you. Help us to participate with you fully with faith. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. I invite our worship team to come up and lead us in one last song, just shouting for joy to the wonder of our Savior. Nothing compares to his promises. To hear this, this benediction and blessing from the Lord from Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. Go in peace.